Listener Production. Welcome to Real Crime Australian Detectives, where police discuss their roles in the iconic cases of our times. Retired Superintendent Deb Wallace is one of Australia's most accomplished officers. She was the head of the Raptor Task Force, which took on outlaw motorcycle gangs in New South Wales after a shocking clash between rivals at Sydney Airport in 2009. Deb is now an investigative journalist and author. We were once on opposite sides of the debate about bikies and organised crime. When we sat down, we discovered that we shared a lot of common ground. Deb Wallace, welcome to Australian Detectives. Thanks, Adam. You came into the job in 1983. How did it happen? Well, I'm from a working class family and um, my parents were hard workers and I had four siblings and two a lot older than me. And my dad, when I left school, I actually wanted to be a travel agent, but I was going to have difficulty convincing my dad who felt that being a girl, you really needed to have a secure job and that meant a government job. So when I did come home from school on my last day of, um, in those days it was sixth form, from Parramatta High, I didn't know how to tell Dad I wanted to go and be a travel agent. So he sort of jumped in before I had a chance and said, it's all right, I've got your career sorted. Um, He was working at an electrical company as a locksmith at the time and he said, I've pulled a few strings with the HR manager and I've got you a job as a clerk typist and you start Monday and you can be there for the rest of your life. And I went along and I stayed there for three years and I thought, boy, so Dad was right because these people look like they have been here all their lives. And then suddenly in 1982, I saw an ad for the New South Wales Police Force looking for new recruits, but in particular, a focus on women. Um, but women coming in as the same as men, same training, same opportunities, same pay, as long as you could get through that darn physical training. And I just felt my dad will be okay because it's a government job, it's secure, and I want a career. And if I play my cards right, I can have one. And, and even the physical training, you didn't ask for special treatment. You just worked harder and you actually achieved all the, the marks you had to. There was no lowering the wall. There was no taking the obstacles. It was just about Deb Wallace being more determined, correct? Yeah, I struggled because I, I wasn't a fitness person at all. And suddenly on my very first day, I was faced with a 10K run around a park called Centennial Park in Sydney. And I met, oh, I was doing this shuffle that you, there was a, a long distance ultra marathon runner called Cliffy Young in my year, and he was a bit of a famous, he used to shuffle along, he was, a, I think, a potato farmer. And I was doing that, and, and the um, sergeant, our trainer, for those who ever follow um, NRL, he was legendary. He played for Australia. His name was Brian Chickamore. I didn't see him as legendary. He was the devil incarnate to me, but he ran behind me and was up me for the rent about, I'm never going to do this, I'm hopeless, so why don't I just save the taxpayers' money and leave, and blah, blah, blah. And after a month, he still gave me a hard time, but then he said to me, you're not going to go, are you? And I said, no, Sarge, I'm going to, I'm going to see this out. It was three months training in those days. And he said to me, you know what? I'll help you. And from that day on, he stayed with me every afternoon and got me fit enough to get to the final test. And that to me was the beginning of 37 years, what represented to me being part of a family. And having cleared those obstacles, you then had to clear the next obstacle, becoming a detective. Do you recall the process? Yeah, it was you know, fate, I believe in fate. 
And I was a young uniform cop out at Blacktown, Mount Druid, again, Western Suburbs, pretty tough area. And in 1980, yes, I was happy. Those men, and they were mainly all men, frontline, you know, working those trucks in those streets, treated me with the utmost respect. I couldn't fault them. And I was so comfortable that I thought, I just want to be doing this work forever with these guys. And there were some girls as well. And then suddenly there was a terrible murder of a nurse called Anita Cobby. She was a 26-year-old nurse um, walking home from work and she was grabbed off the street by five guys who took her and raped her, tortured her and killed her. It got a lot of publicity at the time because after about day two, the man in charge, an iconic detective called Detective Sergeant Graham Rosetta, realised that this was one of those random murders which are difficult ones to solve. So running out of opportunities to feed information out because he didn't have anything, he approached me just out of the blue and said, Wallace, how old are you? And I said, I'm 24. And he said, how tall? And I said, five foot eight. He said, yep, that'll work. Come with me. And the come with me was he dressed me up in clothes similar to what she wore that fateful night and we did a reenactment to see if we could gain information from witnesses. But I think more importantly, we did it the week after, so that seven days after she was abducted and killed. And that kept the media interested for an extra five days instead of leaving. And that allowed him to get the information that cracked the case. And afterwards, I remember he stood me in the car park downstairs after I did the reenactment. He just looked at me very seriously, as he was prone to do, and said to me, how would you like to be a detective? And all I could think of was, boy, I must have walked good on that train. But what he did, he and there's that thing, that word, opportunity. He was not knowing whether I'd even be successful, whether I was going to fit, whether I wanted to, but he, he offered that opportunity. And I've learned in that career, if someone offers you an opportunity, you don't say no. And so I grabbed it with both hands and that began my career in criminal investigation. And you had a definite career path that led to Raptor. You were looking at the Cabramatta area, Vietnamese organised crime for a start. You worked in the Middle Eastern organised crime space as well. And then Raptor, there's a real continuity through your career. What did you learn about the nature of gangs and their threat to society over that period? They don't change. They might have a different face, a different banner, a different thing, but their motive is the same. Their motive is money and greed and power. But certainly money motivates all. And um, then that's where they'll they trade loyalties. If it's And we're seeing today, I think it sort of came in back in the Asian days, Asians would only work with Asians. So it was really hard to infiltrate because of the language issues. They only spoke, you know, in their own language. And so that put an extra sort of handbrake on us as far as using interpreters, et cetera. These days, it's whoever's got the commodity, whoever's got the market, whoever can distribute, we'll just work across boundaries. So there's no sticking to one creed. It's just, we'll just float between, there's no gang loyalty for want of a better word, which gives us opportunities as well. Um, so yeah, I think that's what I think. But, but at the end of the day, the one strongest thing is certainly money and greed. It's my pleasure to actually talk to you because when I first heard of you, we were on sort of different sides of this outlaw motorcycle, bikey, whatever debate that was going on. And we were sort of both driving at the same thing. There was some criminality in the motorcycle clubs around Australia and around the world for that matter. But were these clubs set up for the purpose of organised crime or was there something more subtle going on? What was your experience when you were commanding Raptor, which was the anti-bikey squad in New South Wales? You're 100% right. They morphed into what I was faced with, but let's go right back to their beginning, their foundations, which was a movement in America following World War II. 
And it was simply guys who had come out of the military who needed that structure, wanted the brotherhood, wanted the friendships, wanted something common purpose, and they found their love of motorcycles. And of course, it wasn't until a show, a motorbike show, where there was thousands of really bike enthusiasts, a lot of veterans. Um, I think we're going back to 1947. And two groups had a fight, pulled out their guns and started shooting, and some people got killed. The organisers um, at the time to the media said, please don't judge us by them. They're the 1% who operate outside the law. The rest of us are law-abiding citizens. So that's where that whole catch craze or banner, for want of a better word, came. There's the one percenters outlaw motorcycle gangs. So that's where our focus was purely on the one percenters who were self-declaring they're operating outside the law. And yet... All the members of those clubs will wear the same diamond-shaped 1% uh, logo that the crooks wear inside the clubs. So it is difficult for the public to discern who's who, and I think a lot of them would be surprised, a lot of people would be surprised to know that they're not outlawed and that OMCG is not an actually banned group. It is in some ways in some states, but it's not quite as simple as that. You're right, they're not a declared criminal organisation in our state, in New South Wales, and in many others. There might be some in South Australia, but they're not actually a declared criminal organisation where it means that everyone that is a member of that group is then deemed a criminal. But their proliferation, in my view, of organised crime is that most organised crime groups fly under the radar, particularly the, the Asians, with my experience with the Asian organised crime. This lot they need a public display. They need visibility to operate. And they, the minute, whether they're law-abiding or not, the minute someone joins an outlaw motorcycle gang with the 1% patch, they are self-declaring. They're prepared to do whatever the gang want them to do, regardless of whether they're just an underling. And some, that's where the trouble is, because a lot of vulnerable people kids join these groups on the promise of money, girls, sex with drugs and rock and roll, and suddenly they're handed a gun and say, go and shoot them. And to them, it's like, oh my God, this is real. Yeah. What I saw when I was um, knocking around with the Finks, Hells Angels, Gypsy Jokers, a bunch of other smaller clubs, was a kind of civil war or at least a schism within most clubs where there was the new breed who were getting involved in crime. They, they, they'd come into the clubs because they saw the fearsome profile of, of the club and so they were coming in to join that. But they were coming up against the old caveman bikies of the 60s who were talking about, you were part of that counterculture you were just talking about. And sure, they were involved in illegality, but the, but the threat to the public always seemed to be fairly low. But this new group was suddenly trying to tear the social fabric and get involved in large-scale drug supply, stand over a whole bunch of things, which was very scary to the public. That's right. The the bikers of the, if we call them outlaw motorcycle gangs, these top 10, 15, 20 groups, yeah, their grassroots does start from that, that original, again, as I did in America, the American movement, like, let's just hang out. Yes, you know, low-level crime, perhaps, probably a little bit of intimidation or this is our pub, you know, you have to play by our rules. Certainly wasn't at the level um, of organisation, which we've seen particularly since we saw the influx of particularly um, Middle Eastern groups, and then they went on to recruit a large group of islanders as well. I saw this across the different states where there were bikey task forces created after 2009, um, the Sydney airport murder, which we'll talk about a bit later, where you would have squads of officers who were now targeting the 1% bikers. South Australia, some of the guys there started to call themselves the 
against the 1%, and there was a sense of bikey gang there and blue gang there. Did you try to avoid that us and them mentality? Yeah, it wasn't helpful to do that. I had these amazing senior officers uh, at chief inspector level, and it took a lot sometimes to, especially say, for example, at funerals, which they wanted to go out and do their big show and et cetera, et cetera. And I remember going out when I first went to Raptor in 2014 and um, it was a big funeral. It, for, it was the Lone Wolf. And they were just really growing under the leadership of Erkin Keskin, who died overseas. But Keskin was really recruiting this change of guard, as, as you say. So they were doing a big funeral for an old guard type guy. For He was a life member. But they wanted the big show. Well, I went out with the, the senior team that go and talk to them to negotiate how this big funeral was going to be managed. And I was so impressed by the um, inspectors who said to them, look, you can have your funeral. We're not going to stop, you know, if it, the grieving, but these will be the rules. No free passage. No, you can't run red lights. You can't interfere with the flow of traffic. We'll, we'll put a car at the front, we'll put the car at the back and we'll, we'll contain you. And if you go by these rules, then you'll be allowed to have, you know, with a minimal or fast, we're not going to sort of cause you disrupt your funeral. And they all agreed and it was like a negotiation, I guess, um, as long as they knew the rules. And, and I thought that was a smart way to deal with it. You know, if they step out of line, yep, Raptor are there and, and they'll go on the front foot. Um, after the funeral, of course, if you drink drive or drink ride, then you're, you know, you're free game. But there was those times when we did negotiate as well. Yeah, and you sort of can't win because when you create a safe zone for this run to take place, you're liable to get criticism from the motorists, the public saying, why are the bikies getting special treatment? They're all outlaws. How do you walk the fine line between those two poles? Yeah, I was concerned that's what we were doing. So that's why I went out to see and that really, we definitely didn't allow that. So it was a case of you will abide by the speed limit. You won't overtake. You won't, even if they come to a roundabout, we will not be blocking the free flow of traffic. You will obey every road rule. So I think that was really important. We managed it but we didn't sort of like act as their protectors or their escorts, for want of a better word. Because you've seen that criticism in other states where, in Victoria in particular, uh, we've been called the Switzerland of the bikey world <laughs> where people can come mm. here and kind of do what they want. Um, so you, you must have been very conscious of not just keeping the, the right balance. Exactly. And, and there was a time we had a model called um, consequence-based policing and um, designed by an amazing detective chief inspector, Darren Beecher, who ran the tactical side of Raptor. And it was, it was a group effort that came up with it, but it was very simple. If one of you step out of line, the whole lot of you are going to play the consequence. So you need to discipline your own group. You say you've got these rules and constitutions. Well, let's see how they really work. One gets out of line and we saw numerous cases. We stepped in and, and did some um, strong enforcement to bring them back in line. Yeah, I spent nights, hours, wasted time uh, hearing various bikies complain about police, complain about media, complain about everything else around them in their world. But suddenly I came to the view that they need the media. They need the police. They actually make them real. Whether they're boogeymen or they're freedom fighters, whatever they are, this interaction with police and media is critical to building their own brand. You're 100% right. That, that brand stayed for decades the people come and go, you know, that's, it's the rule of gangs is, as, as my Asian gangs had said to me, a couple of things will happen to us. We'll either get killed because that's the life we lead. We'll go, we'll go to jail for lengthy sentences because you catch us. Or maybe if we survive long enough, we'll get brains and grow up and grow out. 
exactly what you said, the outlaw motorcycle gangs, different to every other crime group, need that public profile because that's what needs them to, their visibility is so important for intimidation, extortion, that other sideline of business, territory control, et cetera, et cetera. So the more visibility, the larger they look. I got a shock to learn when people talk about chapters and I thought chapters had, you know, hundreds of bikies in them. When I we started to drill down, it was like a, a human resource policy. They had some chapters had three people in them. So they would say, we've got 42 chapters. The reality is they might only have 80 members because they might have two in a group. As I said, it's easier to control HR issues for small groups. But there was that whole, as you said, that whole myth about it. And our, what our, one of our main strategies were, because we wrote down, you know, what do they treasure? And one of the things is at the top of the list was their visibility. So one of our main sort of tactic was to take away that visibility. Because it's kind of counterintuitive to have the name of your gang on the back, be on a noisy vehicle everyone can see, associated well-known places of association. It sort of flies in the face of normally the good rules book of the pro-crim. How do you describe the criminal activity within bikey clubs? Yeah, apart from their, you know, controlling more sophisticated these days, I think with, you know, running major organised crime syndicates, for want of a better word, they then go back to their grassroots business, which was extorting shop owners, extorting, taking up debts on behalf of people, saying, I'll buy that debt for you, I'll give you 10000 but then hitting the person who owed the debt an extra 50 on top. The ability then to take on, if, say, for example, you have an incident up here in 2018, and there was a group of sort of low-level sort of Anglo guys running the drug trade. They were the nomads up in the Maitland, Newcastle area, not far from where I live now. And the Finks, who were who were growing in stature, largely Middle Eastern, wanted to gain some territory in that area. They thought, oh, this is a really fertile ground. So by using their growing reputation, their growing propensity for violence, the Finks infiltrated or tried to infiltrate another gang's sort of territory for the mere fact of numbers and their their known brutality as well. When you look at Raptor over those years, 2009, which began after the Sydney airport murder, which was a horrendous scene. Just tell us what happened there at the airport in 2009. Yeah, in 2009, it was a case where there was uh, one member of a, a rival group on the, the Hills Angels on a flight from Melbourne. There was also a member of a Comanchero on there, just, you know, not wearing colours, just coming back from a weekend or whatever. And he did, wouldn't have even known what the hatred is or what their thing It just means, well, there's a hell's angel. We hate them. Why? Or who knows? But they're a rival gang, so we must hate them. So he made a call ahead to his other gang members who turned up at the airport in wait. And, of course, when they got off the plane, they just made it through sort of the security area, so now in the public area, and it all in brawl breaks out with uh, the bollard being used, ripped out of the ground and used to, to bash um, one of the hell's angels to death. So um, a number were charged with fray offences, violent offences, and of course, murder originally, which went down to a manslaughter charge in relation to the President, Mick Howie. Indeed. Um, when I started my research, probably about 2004 or 2005, sort of thing, I looked at the FBI's drug pyramid, 
and the bikies were somewhere in the middle to lower kind of third, if you like. And at the end of that, they're pretty much in the same place. They haven't really changed the, their position much. There's been a massive amount of media. We've seen Sons of Anarchy. We've seen all these kind of books that are saying they're the worst people on earth, the boogeymen. What's the reality in Australia? Do we have much to fear from uh, bikey clubs or gangs in Australia or New South Wales? No, I think these days it's a case, I think the states with a whole range of strategies, you know, including our federal partners as well, have worked really hard to debunk the myth. The trouble is it's a lot of media as well. Like someone might have had a coffee with a guy who happens to be in a Comanchero. So suddenly if the media get there, they go, oh, associate of the Comancheros. Well, he might have had more than a coffee really or went to school with him or whatever, but immediately they're if the cops happen to see them, they'll put off in a report that they're, they're associating with a bikey. So now suddenly they become a almost like a banner, an associate of outlaw motorcycle gangs. I never underestimate them and it's, it's a case of, although we were strong in disrupting their visibility, did we dismantle them? No, because the banner will live a lot longer than the individuals. But is there people, why were the senior members all offshore? There's a reason for that, the risk we proposed, which makes them more vulnerable to enemies both offshore and also communicating onshore to conduct their criminal activities. But the idea is, and, and we used to say, that the minute you got them on the run, you don't all do high five and say, hallelujah, aren't we great? You keep the f- accelerator down and you push harder because that gives you an opportunity to gather so much more intelligence and be ready for the next wave because it'll come. You know, they'll try, they say, oh, is it? and they watch. Our intelligence is great. Theirs is equally as good. They're resilient, they're flexible, and they're robust. And we have to be more than that. We have to be as sure that when they come, that we're ready. When countries slip towards totalitarianism, it's usually the police that are the instruments of that totalitarianism. That's what the former Chief Commissioner of Victoria Police, Mick Miller, used to say. So he was very careful to use the powers that were conferred on the police force very judiciously. And... He talked about the consorting law era where, a bit like disrupt and dismantle, suddenly a policeman could discern who he would consort and who he would not, which some people argued gave us some corrupt policing in various states. Were you aware that there was that danger that you could not, I guess, you had to weigh up the cost as well as the result? 100%. The police use their discretion every day they go out on the road. We did too. That law for us was designed to disrupt, for us, it was a crime prevention tool first and foremost. And we used it for crime prevention. And yeah, and when you looked at the stacks and the ombudsman reviewed our use of the legislation for two years after the, our use, constantly monitored it. Because, you know, it wasn't just Raptor and the specialists who had intimate knowledge of the legislation, it was being used, you know, in the wider community. And it was a really complex law in a way to use, but sometimes one would say not not such a strong sentence, but there was a reason it was so helpful for us for a whole range of strategies. But I remember talking to you earlier about consequence-based policing. We rolled it out when we needed to give that clear message. And yeah, you know, we would use judicially, if, if someone was legitimately out and they just bumped in at the TAB putting a bet on, yeah, of course, you know, and they were known criminals. We didn't use it. wasn't it was no point in in doing something we couldn't, you know, justify in a court setting. And also we wanted to make sure this law was so good for us. We didn't want to in any way bring criticism about its use. 
And also what I noticed from inside the clubs was the heart of the pressure and the seemingly unfair nature of it would drive a lot of people, associates, to want to join the club. <laughs> it's, a, it's a perverse thing. So you had to be careful you didn't make it attractive to people who'd already been screened out of employment, hadn't got education, had very limited futures, and suddenly the bikey club chapter in their suburb was suddenly a place where they could achieve some status in their lives. So were you aware of not making it seem too outlawed, too attractive? Yeah, we, we worked equally hard in debunking the myth of the romance, for want of a better word, of joining a bikey gang. And I was so proud in a way, and I was a real, you know, a really proud commander of the day that a sergeant entered my office from Raptor. And I'd been doing it in the 90s, but, you know, it wasn't probably a very sexy way of policing, doing crime prevention back in those days, doing anti-gang stuff. In fact, it did end me in a little hot water with people who didn't know what I was doing with the Asian gangs. And when he walked in the office, and it's something I never forced on people because to go into the world of um, crime prevention and trying to work with gangs who you should maybe people would see as locking up, it's a really, it's hard to ask that of cops because, you know, we're here to lock up criminals. And when a young sergeant walked into my office and said, you know, Deb, we've got to stop the revolving door and... You know, the feeder groups are coming out of, of, you know, low socioeconomic areas who they, exactly what you just said, see some opportunity to make money, see that they can be part of a group, get status, be somebody. Then we went into the juvenile detention centres and worked really hard on those, with those groups that either had been on the edge of joining the gangs or saw their older brothers in the gangs. And we were the very first um, police program to be allowed in to work side by side with the juvenile detention centres in coming up with these anti-gang programs, which were amazing. They involved sport and football and role models, etc. So, um, yeah, I totally agree with you. You have to work hard to take out the leadership and those that are attracting, but then you have to sort of publicise and work really hard to debunk that myth. Well, the funny thing is when you, when you get to the final reel of these members' life with the clubs, it often ends badly. They're kicked out with in dishonour for the slightest thing. They get bashed. Their motor, motorcycles get taken. The worst things have happened than that. And you wonder, don't they see what happens at the end of these stories? They may see it, but they don't believe it. It's the old case, well, that won't happen to me. They'll stick with me if I go to jail. They've said they'll look after my family. Um, all of this stuff, and exactly what you said, part of the rules if you enter is that you must give up your colours, surrender your colours. You must pay $10,000. And if you've got a Harley, most of them don't. But if you do, you know, you have to surrender that as well. It was an interesting strategy. I talked about the Finks before growing, and it was an interesting strategy they did. They um, had a clubhouse night, so church night, where they, you know, everyone goes along and parties. So you've got cocaine and, you know, alcohol and strippers. It's, you know, and they invited everybody they knew to bring. So it was like a social event, not just restricted to members. And everyone could bring somebody. And they brought blokes along, maybe who thought bikies were pretty cool. And during the night, they, during, under the influence now possibly of alcohol and or drugs, they got these guys, I think it was about 20, signed up to be members of the Finks. And of course, in the cold light of day, a number of them the next day, say about 50% at least, said, hang on a minute, we don't want to be a Fink. We don't want to be, we were out of here. And then of course they went, yeah, but you signed the paper. So to get out, you've got to pay us the $10,000. So that was a pretty good, he made about that night about hundred grand in one night and, you know. Well, it's bizarre because the Finks themselves were originally were built on very strong and clear rules, nothing like that, you know. And 
I think that typifies the the older new schools. Yeah, and in fact, when we did Maitland over, and we did Maitland, which were the gladiators, the old, I think they established in 1963. The clubhouse was amazing. It was like an RSL. It even had a, a memorial area for people, their members that had passed. They had a rock with their name on it, and it was like a, I don't think it remains with it, perhaps. It was manicured Probably garden. Probably were, though. Probably were, yeah. And the pool, they had this pool that was actually inlaid with little tiny tiles that had the gladiator symbol um, and on the bottom of it, like that would have cost a fortune and, and these old blokes, when we raided the place because we had to because they were selling drugs in the local area, we raided it and all these old blokes turned up, half of them didn't one leg because they'd had bike accidents and what over the years and they were the loveliest people and I said to them and we've, we had lunch with them because we had the Salvation Army tent come and um, do some lunch because it was such a big contingent, we did a whole lot of raids up there. And I said to them, guys, I'm showing me their clubhouse with great pride. And I said, guys, why don't you give up the 1% and become a social club? Like your history is amazing, yes, but some of this memorabilia is like a love, like it's great. Just give up the 1%. Kick these young ones out that are, you know, are probably because they're going, yeah, we can't control some of the young ones selling drugs in the pub. I said, but you have to because you're taking a hit for it. Look at us. We're here ripping your clubhouse apart. And they just went, you know... Oh, they did a bit of a sigh and went, you know what, I get, we get what you're saying, but it's just tradition. Oh, God, are you joking? So I agree with what you said. That was exactly when I'm seeing these really elderly gentlemen, and they were gentlemen. They treated me with the greatest respect. And then they've got the ones coming in who are selling the, you know, a lot of speed was going on up there at the time, a lot of ice. And I was saying, you know, what about the community. And they said, yeah, I know, but we're not selling it. I said, no, but the club are under your banner. So yeah, 100% what you said. It's funny because it's exactly the kind of conversation I was having in, in clubhouses. Why don't you give up the 1%? Maybe try golf. Yeah. How about croquet? How about, some, how about a little debate group or something? You know, like, oh, that's all laughed, you know, because yeah. it was just drawing attention. But back to the earlier point, that pressure was creating that fearsome image. And so the unscrupulous ones were now getting into standover because all the media was saying, these guys are the worst guys in the world they're, yeah. and they're coming over the hill at you. Suddenly you had bikers walking into business meetings, sitting at the end of the table saying nothing, just being in their colours. And, and the Poor bugger's handing cash over like he's about to lose his life. You're 100% so, right. Yep. Yeah. I remember yeah. when the Brothers for Life, when they were trying at the time to establish themselves, the Afghani group, you know, we're the new, we're the new sort of world order of power here. In, it was in Parramatta, a place where I lived. And um, they were going into restaurants around the area saying, you know, we're Brothers for Life, you've got to pay us, you know, 200 bucks a week or 1,000 bucks a week or whatever. And the, the shop owners are looking at them going, who are these skinny blokes in T-shirts? When we've got the Hells Angels breathing down our neck, like we know who we're going to pay our thousand bucks to if we have to, we'll be paying, the, not, not these skinny black kids that, from school in T-shirts. So right yeah. what you said, it was that whole reputation. Everyone knew who the Hells Angels were, not the individual, but the banner. Did they know what BFL on a T-shirt was? No. So you're right. Just pretenders, pretenders. Now, you retired in 2019 with a chest full of medals, the Australian Police Medal, National Police Service Medal, <laughs> First Clasp, New South Wales Police Medal, Fourth Clasp. A lot of experience walked out the door when you retired. Was that a difficult decision? It was. It was. Um, in fact, I I wasn't, re- I suppose, in a way, not ready to go. And I remember we talk about, I suppose, gangs being motivated by money. I joined in 1983 and they had this fantastic pension scheme. We were referred to a bit like biker gangs. We were referred to as the pre-88ers because they changed the scheme in 1988. So everyone would look at you and say, oh, you're a pre-88er. 
it was a hard decision because I reached that point that to stay on in the organisation meant I'd lose a fair bit of money. Although not motivated by money per se, it was, I, I felt to myself, maybe I have other things to offer in other ways because I was sort of involved in some charity stuff as well. So I felt, you know what, it's maybe it's time to hand over the baton and I'd achieved probably everything that I'd ever wanted to and now here I am in this organisation. Did I want to go further? No. I didn't put myself up for any further promotions because as superintendent, I still was able to get out and go on raids and still go on out in the car with the guys and girls. I still made operational decisions. I was still approving operations and and I could still call myself a detective. And to me, that's what it was all about. Indeed. A lot of young people listen to this podcast who might be thinking about going into the police. What would be your advice to them based on your experiences? I guess particularly looking at women who might think it's still a male-dominated world, this type of thing. What would be your advice to them considering a career? I would say do it in a heartbeat. There wasn't one day, even in some of the most tragic days that I had when my own officers had been killed, not one day did I not want to get out of bed and go to work. In fact, it was harder to walk away in that day in December 2019 than it was in going in. But I will say, to be realistic, look at yourself because, yes, you're going to see tragedy. You're going to see gore. You're going to be have fear. All those things you'll be faced with, particularly some of the tragic accidents, you're going to see dead bodies. So be true to yourself and don't put yourself through it from the beginning if you don't think that you've got the resilience to be able to do it. There's, no, there's no, nothing wrong in saying I don't think this is for me. And even if you're in the job and after a period of time, it doesn't have to be 37 years like me, it could be four years you suddenly say, maybe this isn't the job for me. I'll seek something else. But never be frightened to put your hand up to go in if you think you can do it or also put your hand up to say, it's not for me. Well, I'm very glad you stayed in 37 years and also had time to talk to us today. So thank you very much for your time, Deb Wallace, and thank you for your service to New South Wales. Thanks, Adam. If you'd like to hear more of my work, go to Real Crime Features, Real Crime Interviews and State Crime Command Investigations. Thanks for listening. Executive Producer Grant Tothill. Mixing, editing and theme music by Matt Nikolic. Associate Producer Matt Dwyer. Research by Nolly Shand. Digital producer, Jack Shand. This has been a Real Crime production. Written and produced by Adam Shand. Listener.